0: First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and as you're finding your place there, I want to announce some good news. Uh, ben Little, who's been our in for the past God, three or four months, something like that, uh, since middle of the summer, uh, last Sunday, as you know, was in view of a call, him and Meg, over at Seaford Baptist in Seaford, Virginia, and last week they voted to call him and uh, bring them on staff there as their associate pastor of worship, and so we're excited to about them. They're going to be starting December 14th. So yeah, it's good stuff. And so uh, church, we had a, a part in that. God's used us, you know, gave him a platform to be able to use his talents to serve the body of Christ. And so uh, from there, launched him out. So it's good. You know, sometimes we look at uh, situations when there's a transition of leadership and all that, but God knows everything. And so he's bringing people in and out and putting people in positions. I mean, he's the guy that, shouldn't say he's the guy, he's the God who uh, who lifts up kings and brings them down, and he does everything in between all that. So we're grateful for uh, Ben and his ministry here over the last several weeks, and I think he may be with us a couple more weeks until they transition fully over there. But uh, as you know, Ricky and his family will be here starting this coming Sunday, and so there's a good chance that Ben and Meg may be with us for a few Sundays just kind of helping out in, uh, in our worship ministry as well. So we're grateful. I mean, what a just servant's heart to be able to do that and be willing to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to continue in our study just looking at the church. And so far, what what we've learned, what we've uh, been um, reminded of was the fact that we as the church, we are a preaching people, right? We're we're people that's built our lives, built our identity, built our community around the preaching of the Word of God. And so our text for our preaching is the Bible. That's where we... Derive all of the things we're to know about the Lord and about life and about ourselves. And so as we look at the Bible, we see that the central subject of the Bible, it's God. Uh, Here's something that you may need to, to remind yourself of this morning. You're not the central focus of the word of God. God is the central focus of his word. And so he uses the word about himself to form us as a theological people. We talked about that last week that our understanding of God is influenced by anything and everything in our life, and so when we have bad experiences or good experiences or, or whatever it may be, that influences us in how we think about God, and so we need to make sure that we're always going back to His Word because it alone tells us who God is and what God is like, and as we read there in the Bible, we see that its grand message is that of redemption, redemption brought about by God, And so when we think about this grand message in God's Word and how it is about redemption, about bringing lost humanity, sinful humanity, back into relationship with God, it forms us as a gospel people. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. All throughout this series, over the next uh, seven weeks and, and the two weeks prior, my goal in this series is to remind us and solidify our understanding of what the church is, who the church is, what the church is to do. We're wanting to make sure that we're looking and understanding the church from a biblical perspective. And so if you look at all the different subjects that we're going to talk about, and you may disagree with some of those platforms, some of those positions, but I hope you will agree on this one message this morning. Really, I hope you agree with all nine because they're all true and they're all biblical. But if you just had to pick and say, you know, I disagree with all eight, focus in on this one because this is the matter of life and death. We're going to talk this morning about the gospel. We're looking at the fact that the church is a gospel people as well as all of the implications that come with being a gospel people, come with the gospel message itself. And so and, and what we're going to do today and the next two Sundays is look at the The idea, the concept of salvation, the concept of redemption in the Word of God and how it applies and influences and affects the church. We're going to talk about this doctrine of salvation and come at it from different angles. This morning we're going to look at the gospel and how we're a gospel people. So we're talking about what it means to be saved. What does it mean to be saved, to be redeemed, to be brought into relationship with the Lord? Obviously, there's no greater need in a person's life than to experience salvation, to experience forgiveness of sin, and to be uh, released from the judgment of that sin. Next Sunday, we're going to look at how a person is saved by the gospel. What does that moment look like? What happens in that moment when you hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and are transformed by the gospel? Then, on December 6th, we're going to look at how we are to tell others the gospel so that they can be saved so that they can experience the redemption that you have experienced as a follower of Jesus. And so this meta narrative of the Bible is that of redemption. It's a great story. It's why the church is a gospel people. It's all because of the gospel and the story of redemption. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is reminding the believers there in Corinth of this great truth. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 15. Then I want to come back and... Share with you four forming truths. Number Verse number one. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on to talk about how many people observed and experienced the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrected person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if from these four verses here this morning, I want us to talk about how we are a gospel people. Now, we want to keep what we're looking at here in the context of what's happening in this letter to the church at Corinth. And so, here in this chapter, Paul is speaking to the doctrine of the resurrection. It's all about the doctrine of the resurrection. And, in fact, we find here the most extensive treatment of the resurrection, what that means for the believer, and all the implications that come along with it in all of Scripture. This is the most, most extensive uh, description of it. And so he makes the case here that the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, in fact, he'll even go so far to say, if Jesus is not raised, then you're still dead in your sins. Your faith is futile. It's of no value whatsoever. And so everything in our faith hinges, is contingent upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he has not been raised, then we will not be raised either, meaning we're, all, we're still dead in our sins. But thankfully, we know that Jesus has been raised. In fact, verse 5 and, and the following verses there, he goes on to talk about all the people that saw the Lord Jesus. We have multiple accounts throughout the New Testament of Jesus being alive, walking around, doing miracles, doing miraculous things, interacting with people post crucifixion and post burial. And so Jesus was raised from the dead. This message of a new and resurrected life that that Paul's talking about here is part of the gospel message. It's, It's what makes the church a gospel people. And so I want us to look at four forming actions in regards to the gospel and what they mean to our salvation. First of all, we discover the gospel is a message to be preached. When we think about us being a gospel people, we see here that the gospel is a message to be preached. It is a message to be shared. Right, It's a message for people to hear and to embrace, as we will talk about in just a moment. So Paul here is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel and the gospel that he had preached and a gospel that he had delivered to them. We see that there in the first part of verses 1 and 3. And so before we really talk about what the message of the gospel is, let's uh, or how, it appro- how it's to be preached, I should say, let's define what the gospel is. In other words, what is... The gospel. If we were to ask that question this morning, we would probably have a a varying of different descriptions. Not all of them would be uh, the same, but not all of them would be wrong either. We would just describe it in different ways. We would come at it from different perspectives. Perhaps there would be some that would misunderstand it and misdefine it. And so it's important that we understand this term because it's a term that we use often in the Christian faith. But like all terms... They can take on different meanings over time and with different use. What happens is people begin to form their own ideas. They begin to think about what they would like the gospel to be, how they would like the gospel to be, to be defined, how they would like for it to interact with them personally, how they want it to touch on some areas but not touch on other areas. And so we as humans, we tend to do this. This is the way we go about things. And so we need to make sure that we're always going back to the book and defining the gospel, how God has defined it. When we redefine it, it becomes a dangerous and destructive highway to be on. Because what's happening is is you're fundamentally fundamentally altering the message of the gospel itself. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. I am by no means a chemist, right? I uh, I took chemistry in my junior year of high school. I I made sure I got a degree in college that didn't force me to take those type of things. I like science, but who wants to get more, who wants to do things in college or postgraduate work that's harder and it's not really going to set you up for anything you're going to do in life. So I chose majors that wouldn't require me to have further math than I already had, no foreign languages except for seminary, obviously Greek and Hebrew, which will, uh, will, will kick your backside. I'm just, I'm just telling you. But I chose those sorts of majors. So I'm not a chemist, but I do find chemistry and and the things that go along with chemistry very fascinating. So I want you to think about something with me. Think about the composition of matter. It's comprised of molecules that have come together, uh, which are nothing more than various combinations of atoms. And so, for example, think with me about Hydrogen. I don't know how much you know about chemistry and about the table of elements and all of those things, but hydrogen is on that table of elements. Hydrogen is a colorless, odorless, tasteless, and a very highly flammable gas with a molecular formula of H2. And so, in essence, hydrogen is composed of two hydrogens with a single bond. That's what H2 is. And and so this bond, this gas, is when it's present, you're not going to see it, you're not going to smell it, you're not going to taste it, you're not going to know it's there at all, but if you strike a match and you're close to that gas, guess what? You will experience this tasteless, odorless, and and smellless type of gas. You're going to experience its presence very, very quickly. It's highly flammable. So if you take that that molecule, h two. And you add to it an oxygen atom, you get something that is fundamentally different. So you take those two hydrogens, you add one oxygen to it, and the substance is no longer flammable. You know what the substance is? It's water. You guys are chemists too. It's water. And so you've just tweaked it a little bit, right? You didn't even tweak it by double. you got two hydrogen atoms. You add to it an oxygen atom. And so like one-third of it's been changed. And all of a sudden, fundamentally, it's different. So that it's no longer flammable. It actually extinguishes flames. When we take the gospel message and we begin to tweak it, and we begin to, to change something here or there, and it's just little things, no big deal. It fundamentally alters and shifts the gospel into something altogether different from what it originally was. And so before we biblically define the gospel, let's just take a minute and talk about what the gospel is not. I'm going to go I'm going to pull these from Mark Dever's book 9 Marks of a Healthy Church. And so these are not original with me. Number 1. When we redefine the gospel or when we seek to understand the gospel, we need to know that what it's not, and the first thing that it's not is it's not simply that we are okay. It's not simply that we are okay. You know, there are some who think Christianity is this, is nothing more than a religious therapy sessions. And so, really, all you need to do is get in touch and to better understand your inner self. Do you want to get alone or you want to get with some other people and really get down deep and talk about things that are going on in your life and, and try to unearth whatever is down there. But the more you search for it, it's like a bottomless pit. You never seem to get to the bottom of what's happening and what's wrong with you. And so... Obviously, these people would think that there's good in every person. All you have to do is discover it. Go digging for the good things that are in you, and the Bible will tell you you'll never find it. We're all evil and haters of God. And so if we think that this is nothing more than a religious therapy session, why do people still so, feel so empty and so dirty after plumbing the depths of their inner self? The truth is the gospel is not a a a simply a simple idea that you're okay. No, the Bible utterly rejects that idea that we're okay and that everyone should accept their current condition. The Bible would never tell you to accept your current condition. It would never tell you to be okay with your finitude or your limitless or the imperfections in your life. The, the Bible would tell you well that's just how you are it's just you being you no the Bible would say you're not okay there's something fundamentally wrong with you and it's called sin and it's called uh, um, it's called evil it is called hatred of God it's called rebellion against God tells us that the human condition is so sick that humans need a whole new life right Nicodemus comes under the cloak of Nike he's hooded he comes to Jesus and what does Jesus tell him You must be born again. You need a new life. Nicodemus, your religion, your Phariseeism, all the things you know about God's word, that's not enough. You need a transformation from the inside out that literally gives you new life. Second thing we know the gospel is not is that it's not simply that God is love. Now, we know from 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. The Bible says so. But it says a whole lot more about God than just that he is love, right? God is more than love. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's forgiving. The Bible tells us he is kind and long-suffering. The Bible tells us he is eternal. So those who would place love over and above the other attributes are basically saying love trumps all of those other things. Those other things are not as important. But the Bible, I believe, would lead us to the point, lead us to the place where we would understand that God... Love and holiness and righteousness and justice and kindness and long-suffering and all of the attributes that are laid out in the Scriptures about God work together in tandem. It is a holy righteousness. It is a holy love. It is a holy eternality. It is God in His fullness. He is a God of love and justness. Think about this idea of love, though. It's not superseded by the other characteristics. If God is love, then why did Jesus have to hang on a cross? Number one, that's not very loving from the Father to the Son, right? Hey, I want you to go down there and I'm going to destroy you. We're going to study Isaiah 53 in small group this morning where it talks about he's crushed for our iniquities. How is that love if there's not something else driving that act? How is it loving to have your blood shed? How is it loving to experience the pain of being forsaken by the Father, being abandoned by the Father as the Son hangs on the cross? So he experienced those because God is love, and he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he is forgiving. See, he went to the cross because in his love, justice had to be served. Sin could not just simply be brushed aside. It had to be dealt with, and God, the Father, lovingly dealt with it through Jesus, the Son. Thirdly, it's not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. Now, we know Jesus is a a friend that sits closer than a brother. We know that Jesus is our example. But again, he's much more than those things. He never brushes aside our sin. Instead, what Jesus did on the cross was he purchased our freedom from slavery. He reconciled our rebellion with the Father. He restored fellowship with the Father through that sacrifice. And so what Jesus did is he justified the guilty by becoming sin in order to fully repay the penalty. Again, Isaiah 53 in small group sets up so beautifully with what we're talking about this morning. He's he's crushed for our iniquity. His blood was shed so that we can have forgiveness. God destroyed his son so that he didn't have to destroy you. It's not simply that Jesus wants to be your friend. No, his death, his resurrection was to disarm and to conquer the enemy. Jesus is your friend, yes, but he is your king just as much. He's the one who purchased you back to himself. Fourthly, the gospel is not simply that we should live right. You know, many times it's thought that the Christian life is a list of do's and don'ts. It's perceived that good Christians are busy doing good things and doing religious things. This idea that the gospel becomes associated with behavior more than the cross and the tomb. So what really is beginning to happen there is the gospel, it becomes an additive to your life of trying to live a certain way. It's Jesus plus something else. And anytime you have Jesus plus another thing, you no longer have the gospel message. Jesus and Jesus alone. Should we live right? Absolutely. But we don't live right to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. We seek to live right because we're in relationship with Jesus. There's a big difference there. There's an eternal difference there. You see, the Pharisees thought they were living right. They sought to live right. What did Jesus say to them? How did he describe them? You bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Your religion is good as a tomb. It's about as worth as much as a bunch of dust and ashes left over from a decaying corpse. So the gospel is not those four things. The gospel would call us to a radical response to our condition. It's not an additive, it's not something that's sprinkled on your attempt at good behavior and choices. No, the gospel is a message of good news to those who realize their desperation before God. I am undone, Isaiah said. I am a man who lives with among people of unclean lips, wicked hearts. So what then is the gospel? We know from the Bible that the word gospel means good news. Right here, according to verses 3 and 4, we see that the gospel is simply Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was buried for our sins, and Jesus was raised from the dead for our sins. It is His finished work that makes us right with God. So you see, Jesus did something for us that we could never do for ourselves, something that we could never earn, something that we could never garner, something that we could never make happen. So the gospel is literally good news. It's good news that broken people like you and I can be in a relationship with a righteous, perfect, holy, and good God. That is the good news. How does this take place? We share it like this. We teach it like this in our Connections class. Four gospel truths. Number one, every person is a sinner. How do we come into relationship with Jesus? How do we believe on this gospel? We need to understand that every person is a sinner and sins against God. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of the holy, righteous standard of the Lord himself. All right, you understand that? You may think you're good. You may think, man, I've I've never missed church. I've been 50 years here. I've never missed a day of church. First of all, you're kind of weird. Surely in 50 years you got sick, so you came to church sick and you got someone else sick. So thank you for that, you know. Now, I'm, I'm grateful for people who don't miss church. we got a lot of people gone this weekend, so it's great to see such a great uh, congregation and crowd this morning because we got people who are away visiting family, away visiting friends. we got people celebrating anniversary this weekend who are away. I mean, you name it, I know of people who are away today, and so it's great to see such a good crowd. So think about that. It's not that we're seeking to be good. We know we're not good. Number two, sin separates every person from God. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says, Romans 6, 23. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. What does death symbolize? Separation, right? There's more than it symbolizes, but we know it symbolizes separation. We are separated from God because of our sin. Number three, forgiveness and restoration from all sin are exclusively found in Jesus Christ. John 14, 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, that's not very inclusive, Jesus. Absolutely it's not inclusive. It's not inclusive in the sense that you can take whatever you path you want and get to the same top of the mountain that someone else is headed on, but it is inclusive in the fact that Jesus says, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it's inclusive in that all can come. It's exclusive that you have to come through Jesus Christ. Number four. Salvation is the free gift of God available for every person, but it must be received by faith and repentance. So as we talk about the gospel here, this message, we see that it is exactly what Paul preached and delivered to the Corinthians. Look what he says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. And so we see here how Paul approached the preaching of the gospel. And how did he approach it? Urgently. It's of first importance. It is priority. It is numero uno on his list of tasks to do each and every day of his life. He was to preach the gospel because it is the only message by which men and women and boys and girls can come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that people can be forgiven of sin and transformed for all of eternity. It was of first importance. You see, that's why Paul never shrunk back from preaching the gospel. That's why he never substituted another message. That's why he never delayed in taking the gospel to people. He preached and he delivered what was most important to God and what was most important to sinners. See, the greatest message you could ever share with someone in your family or who works with you in your office or who goes to school with you down the road, the greatest message you could ever share it's how they as a sinner can be forgiven of sin and made new in God. And so as a church, we are gospel people with a message to be preached. And we preach this message as of first importance because it and it alone has the power to change lives. The gospel is the only message we have. We are a one-trick pony. We have no other message to share. And we're going to do other things. We're going to do social ministry. We're going to feed the homeless. We're going to go minister to needs. We're going to build ramps and do things for people in our community. We're going to welcome everybody. But when we speak with them, what do we share? The gospel. It's not seven steps to a happy life or seven steps to whatever. It is you're a sinner. God loves you. I'm here to tell you that very message, how you can be forgiven, how you can experience the life God created you to have. There's a second forming action about the gospel, and that is it is a message to be received. See, Paul here in verse 1, he preached it, and they, the Corinthians, received it. Verse 3, I delivered to you as a first, and first importance what I also receive. So Paul's preaching a message the Corinthians are to receive because he, as the preacher, once received it. That's what we do with the gospel message. We hear it, we're transformed by it. And then we preach it with others for them to receive it as well. Paul had received the gospel into his life. You Think about his, his story. Think about what was happening and had happened in Paul's life. Prior to Acts chapter 9, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, there to persecute the church, drag them into prison, perhaps even put more to death, what happened there on that road? He met Jesus. And in that moment and in some way, he began to understand his sinfulness, his hatred of God, his separation from God. And he saw the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness available in the Lord Jesus as he had that experience with him and was drawn to faith. He agreed with the remedy for his sin. What Paul did is what we have to do today. He faith into Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Paul, who's Saul back then, could have done what some people do today. I'm good, Lord, which is a funny phrase. I'm good, Lord, which basically saying no, Lord, which is moronic. You just don't say that. If he's Lord, you say yes. If he's king, you say yes, sir. Right? That's where he would have never said this. Well, let's just go for the sake of argument this morning. What if he did what so many people do? I'm okay. I don't need that, Lord. I've got my religious background. I've got my grandma, my grandpa. They love the Lord. They're in the church. I grew up in this church. I've been baptized. I walk the aisle. I I, I know certain verses. Whatever pedigree we want to lay out there, we hold on to that rather than saying, I am a sinner that's undone, and I need Jesus because I'm separated from him. So Paul didn't do that. He received the gospel into his life. He didn't try to outweigh the the, the goodness of receiving it versus the badness of rejecting it. He just took it. He didn't try to say that I'm I'm good, I can pay my own sin debt. Because when you do that, you're rejecting the gospel because it doesn't doesn't fit into your preconceived ideas about salvation. Saul was like... We are, and what he acted like. How we need to to, to act. He received the message of the gospel, and what the beauty of all of this is that God never forces you to accept it. Regardless of your reformed position, how Calvinistic you may be, I don't believe the Lord ever would force you to believe this. There's this tension in Scripture there that we have a choice to make. And so we see here that we need to receive this into our lives. We preach, people receive. This leads us to a third forming action. It's a message to be stood upon. Latter part of verse 1. He preached, they received, in which you stand. See, the Corinthians had heard the gospel preached. They had received it by faith. He's writing to a church here. He's not writing to a bunch of pagans. So we we know that these Corinthians are in relationship. They are regenerate is the theological term. They've been born again. They have new life in Jesus. Is this church a a mess? Absolutely it's a mess, right? We know the sin that they were dealing with, the sin that they were entertaining, the sin that they were even celebrating there in chapter 6. But they're still believers. They're still regenerate in their walk with the Lord. They'd received the Lord Jesus by faith. And so what we see here is that they had continued to stand upon and end this gospel. They had come to know that Jesus died for their sin on the cross, that he, that he had bore their sin in shame, that his blood satisfied the wrath of God and the justice of God and had brought mercy from God to them. They had come to know that Jesus was buried in the tomb, the tomb that they deserved, and they knew that their sins is what had sent him there. They had come to know that Jesus was raised from the dead, that there on the third day he stood up out of that tomb, and he walked out of that tomb, conquering sin and death. He was raised to new life. The victory that he won and the new life he received, they also believed and understood that they, there in Corinth, had received that new life and new forgiveness was theirs. They stood upon the gospel as they continued to faith into Jesus and were saved. But they also stood upon the gospel every day after that moment. It formed the way they were to live life. It formed the way they looked at individuals and relationships. They began to understand that nothing and no one is beyond redemption. How many times in our relationships, especially in the contentious w- culture and, and time that we live in right now, that we think because you disagree with us on whatever the issue is, we can never have a, a relationship whatsoever. No, nothing is beyond redemption. Right? I mean, we just sang the last song. Our sins, though they are many, how does it go? His mercy is more. That's why we like worship pastors, because the preacher never can remember the lyrics of the song. I just know it fits the context. And as we were saying that, I'm thinking of the verse Though sin abounds, his grace abounds that much more. Think about that. There's nothing I can do to, to get beyond the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so today, if you're a Christian, you're like the Corinthians, you're regenerate. You know that. There's a there's a love for the Lord that you have, though you've been walking at a guilty distance for some time. You're in some pretty good company. David was like that for one year, if you don't know that. I mean, he, he I, I've been joking with our small group. He's the peeper looking in on the woman who's taking the bath. He sends for her. He, he, he has relations. He tries to cover it up by murdering. Her husband, this guy is in a lot of sin, right? And he's walking around that guilt and shame for a whole year, over a year, until Nathan confronts him, and which is the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. And we see a beautiful picture there. It's Psalm 51. As he recognizes his sin, confesses it, and is restored. Nothing and no one is beyond the forgiveness and the restoration of the gospel. It brings us to a fourth forming truth. The gospel is a message to be transformed by. See, the gospel is not just an entry ticket into heaven. I think sometimes we in the church, we we begin to think that the gospel is that message I heard when I first heard it, first understood it, first believed, and then there's something else that I need the rest of my life. No, I'm saved in and by the gospel, and I continue to walk and be saved in the gospel. Look what he says here in verse 2. And by which, remember, he's preached it. They've received it. The Corinthians are standing in it. And so, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. You're to be transformed. You're to walk in this. It's to be something that continues to transform and to change your life day by day. And then he adds the disclaimer, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We're going to deal with that in just a moment. So the gospel is more than an entry ticket into heaven. It's an invitation to a life of ongoing sanctification, ongoing transformation. As a Christian, when you heard the gospel, you turned from your sin, you placed faith in Jesus, you were at that moment transformed by the gospel message. You were once transformed. Dead in trespasses and sins. Now you're raised to life in Christ. See, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus became a reality in your life. Everything that the Lord accomplished for you on the cross, there on the tomb, was applied to you, put to your account. You were transformed in that moment. You became a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 like this: Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You're not who you once were. You may still deal with some of the sins you used to deal with. But that is not who you are. You're a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ. You've got to allow the Lord to continue to transform you so that, that old man that we that that so that old man we can't see as well anymore. Instead, we see Jesus. So we continue to live in the gospel. We continue to be transformed by his death, burial, and resurrection. Not saved over and over again. That's not the idea. It's not the idea that if you sin, you lose salvation and you again have to be saved. That's not what Paul's saying here. No, you're saved in this. You, here's another way to think about salvation you have been saved, right? The moment you confess Christ. For me, it's April 24th, 1997. I remember after I prayed, asked the Lord to forgive my sins, my watch on my wrist deemed 1 o'clock Central Time. I'm weird like that, I remember certain things. You may not remember date, time, you probably remember setting, context, things like that. So the moment you came into relationship with Christ, you were saved, you were regenerated, given new life, right? Today, if you're in Christ, you're being saved. You're walking in that salvation. You're living out what 1 Corinthians 15, 2 says. You are being saved in this. I'm walking in this salvation. I'm living for the end. I'm living in light of eternity. I've got my eyes on the prize. I've got my eyes on Jesus. I'm living for the end time, right? But there's going to be a day because you're not perfect yet. Anybody perfect people here? If you say yes, you just proved you're not, right? It's a trick question. So we're not perfect yet. We're still being conformed. We're still being transformed. That's this theological term called sanctification. There's going to be a day, though. So justification is the moment you're saved. Sanctification is where we're living today. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved is future, right? That's glorification. So the moment you die, and meet Jesus, or if Jesus was to come back, we will be transformed fully. Salvation will come to an end for us. We will fully experience all the things that we've been longing and living for. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's this idea of salvation being more than just a a momentary ticket into heaven type of thing. So when the Lord reveals those areas of that old sinful nature in us, what do we do? As we live out this sanctification, what do we do when he presses those points in our life? Will we do what we did when we first believe? What did you do? came to the cross. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. No, you're not being saved again. Remember, you're already in Christ. But you still come back to the cross. Lord, I'm a sinner. And I understand I put my faith and trust in you, and and I understand my sins were nailed to the cross. New Testament's clear about that. I I know that they were paid for. When you said to tell us that it is finished on the cross, that was for my sins, past, present, and future. But, Lord, these things you're you're, you're, you're pointing out in my life. I just confess them to you and I thank you that they are forgiven. I thank you they've been dealt with. I receive that forgiveness. Lord, help me walk in newness of life. That should be our approach when the Lord presses his finger down and his word speaks of those areas of our lives that are wrong and sinful and rebellious. We trust his sacrifice for the forgiveness. We crucify and bury that sin. We walk away from it. We cut it out of our lives. That's why Jesus used such... uh, hyperbolic language and he says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to steal, cut it off. You're not literally saying pluck it out, but I would say if it's really that big of a deal in your life, you're better to not have an eye, he says, and not be able to see than to have an eye and continue in sin. So he's saying deal with your sin in radical ways, trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness and the sanctification. And we do all of this as we pursue new life in the Lord Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. If you today have faith, by faith, have believed the gospel message and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us you've been saved. The Bible tells us you're being saved. And the Bible tells us you're going to be saved. It's transforming in your life. So the big question this morning is, have you experienced this type of, of transformation. I mentioned the latter part of verse 2 and I want to point this out. Paul makes an interesting and frightful statement here in verse 2. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So apparently what Paul is pointing out here is it is possible to give lip service to Christian ideas and never actually give faith to those ideas. You can actually be in church, grow up in church, live in church, uh, serve in the church. You can be on staff. You can stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God and still not be a follower of Jesus. How scary is that? That you can so deceive yourself into thinking my religion, my religious activity, the things I'm striving, that those are good enough. And they prove, even though deep within the recesses of our heart, I think every one of us who have lived that sort of life, we know it's a facade. My testimony is I lived that way for five years, trying to make my religion work, trying to make my activity work, trying to make those good things that I was striving for to work and to make me a Christian. But I had to come to a place where I understood that my good works are like filthy rags in the sight of the Lord and bow down before the Lord Jesus. We know from Judas Iscariot, right? It's interesting. No one, no new parents ever named their son Judas Iscariot, whatever, right? None of us would ever do that. So what do we learn about Judas? A lot, but here's one thing that we may not think about all the time. We know from the life of Judas Iscariot that you can literally be around Jesus and be around the work of Jesus without ever being in Jesus and believing on his work. Judas walked around with Jesus for three years, He saw the miracles, he heard the teachings, he experienced the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the love of this man who was there as his teacher supposedly, and yet Judas was never transformed by that. Today, we can live in the church, serve in the church, be in the church, be around the church, be around the gospel, and it never touched our lives. That's what Paul is saying here. Unless you believed in vain so how can we know if we've experienced the transforming power of the gospel in our lives? One way is to examine our lives and how we live. To say that you trust without living as though you do is not to trust in any biblical sense of the word. Think about that. To say you trust without living as though you do is not to trust in any biblical sense of the word. I think I mentioned it last week. Paul or uh James, the half-brother of Jesus says in James 1, that we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The one who only hears the word is like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. That's what the idea is here. We need to be those who don't just say with our lips, I agree with that, amen, pastor. We need to be those who say, I'm going to put my life to that. I'm going to live by the word of God. Mark Dever says it this way, We cannot claim to be believers, and yet knowingly, repeatedly, and happily break His law. How do I know if I'm in a relationship with Jesus? I think that one of the best ways you'll know whether or not that's true is if when you sin, you feel the prick of the Holy Spirit on your life. Oh, it doesn't mean you're not going to continue to do that. But it's a good indication that someone there is speaking into your life. Does it give you the full answer? Could it could be the Holy Spirit's drawing you to faith in Jesus. But if you are, you, you know, you, you believe and you really are convinced that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you're walking into guilty distance, and if you can go and sin and live like hell, and it never bother you, trust me, that's where you're headed. But if there's something in your spirit and something in your heart that troubles you often, though you may continue to deal with that sin and struggle with that sin and live in that sin, it's a good indication you're at least on the right road. As a church, we are a gospel people. We've been redeemed and we are being transformed to the image of Christ. This is part of what it means to be the church. I mean, we are a gospel people. Amen? That was terrible. I'll take that. Uh, some of you are asleep. We're a gospel people, right? But as an individual, here's the question: Have you heard the gospel? Have you believed it and staked your life upon it? Are you simply just plain religion today? Many people in the church plain religion. I heard, and I'm not trying to say this stuff to scare you. I'm just trying to point the facts out, the truth out. Billy Graham said years ago, I mean, when I was a kid, I think, Billy Graham was saying that in his opinion, here's a guy that crisscrossed the world. In his opinion, 80% of the church was lost and on their way to a devil's hell. That's a scary thought. I don't know if that, that, that number is accurate. It's probably pretty close today. And so are we just playing religion? Do we attend church regularly or occasionally or do we do this just when our curiosity is up or do we attend church when our guilt is aroused or while regularly and with great satisfaction just simply serving ourselves? If any of these things describes you, then could be that you're not a gospel person. could be that you need the gospel today. So the big question, again, is what is going to keep you from faithing in to Jesus. Here's the thing that used to keep me away from it. What are people going to say? I grew up in a large church. Um, I think the day that I made it public as a freshman in college, I probably stood there in front of 3,000 people and said, I, I put my faith and trust in Jesus this past Thursday. I Walked for five years trying to make religion work, and it, it didn't work, and so I, I came to that understanding this past Thursday morning. One of the biggest decisions for me was to go home and tell my mom. One of the biggest decisions for me was the next morning on Friday morning, I rode to, to, to school, to the University of Arkansas with two of my good friends, Keith Harmon, who's been here a couple of times, and Ben Trueblood. Both of those guys are champions in the ministry, and I just sat with, I don't know if we are in Ben's Ford Ranger or if we are in Keith's Mazda, B2200, but it was a single cab little guy, and so we're, of course, we were all small back then, and so we're kind of crowded in there, and I had to tell those guys on the way to class, saying, hey, yesterday when I was at work, the Lord is just really working in my heart, and I gave my life to Jesus. That's a scary thing when you're you know you're talking to other believers who think you're a believer, and yet, you know what they did to me? Welcomed me, celebrated. All the fears that I had going into that were debunked. What's holding you back? For us Christians, we know that we're not a perfect people, right? We know we still battle against this nature of the flesh. But thanks be to God, we still can stand in the gospel. We know he's at work in our lives. We know the gospel is transforming us day by day. And so what do we do? We keep leaning into the gospel. We keep coming to the cross. We keep trusting in the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We keep trusting this beautiful message of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do this because we are a gospel people. Gospel people. The Bible tells us, good news, right? It's the gospel. He begins telling us that God made you, created you, loves you, has the best for you, wants to be in a relationship with you. He is the friend that really wants to know you and to help you. The problem with all of that, the bad side of all of that, is you're not very friendly. You're a sinner. You're a wicked person. You're selfish. You're the person that always comes and always looks about yourself and your own needs. You're the anti friend. But Jesus still reaches out and embraces you and your rebellion and hatred of God, he's the one that says, this guy hates me. He doesn't know anything about me, but I love him so much. I will take his sin upon my shoulders. Again, we're going to look at this in just a few minutes in small group, Isaiah 53. I mean, think about what Jesus is doing. There. I don't want to steal our small group leaders' thunder, but think about what Jesus is doing in going to the cross, you're a hater of God, and he says, I don't care. I will die for that person. If someone came to my house and sought to harm my family, I wouldn't put myself in jeopardy so that that guy could be forgiven for trying to harm my family. But that is what Jesus did for us. That's the bad news. The best news is is he did all of that. And so he did that, went to the cross. You can be forgiven and made right and made whole. And that's not just a momentary thing that you could lose. It's an eternal thing you can never, ever Father, this morning, we would have no hope if it were not for the gospel. Lord, if it wasn't for what you did on Calvary and the blood that was shed there and the tomb that was filled and then emptied, we would still be, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in sin and trespass. It's the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Father, we are grateful that um, you did all of that for us. This morning, as we have talked about the gospel message, as we've talked about what it means for us, and hopefully we've inspected our own lives. God, I pray for believers today. Those who are walking in step, those who are not. pray that we've been encouraged to lean into the gospel to walk in it, to stand in it, to build our lives upon it. Lord, that we would be committed as a church to doing that. I pray for sinners, those who maybe for one of the first times are beginning to realize that they've been nothing more than religious, but they're still in their sin. Others, they know they've never been quote-unquote Christian. But they're beginning to see that they're sinful. They're cut off from you. God, I pray for them this morning that they would see the grace and the goodness of Almighty God. That, Lord, you love them despite who they are. I pray this morning you would help us by faith to lean in, to trust you, to give our lives to you. Lord, I pray that we would all turn from the sinfulness and the wickedness in our life, that we would cast it away, that we would nail it to the cross, that we would cut it out of our lives, that we would walk away from it, never to return. We do this because we are a gospel people transformed by what you've done. Lord, as we move into this time of response, help us to respond faithfully with repentance as we look to you. We pray all of this in that wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand to our